Lord. Welcome to Worldwide Bible Study. I'm Pastor Wolf Mueller, Pastor of Jesus Staff, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, studying the life of Jacob with Luther. Let's dig into it. So we uh, we are it at the place of Jacob's dream. Oh, and I found this new tool for Zoom this week, which is the disappearing pin, which lets me circle and then it disappears, which is going to be my new favorite thing of all. So, um, so we're in this discussion of of the dream that that the uh, that the Lord gave to Jacob, and he wakes up. So this is Genesis twenty eight fifteen and so forth, and following, and uh, and now the question is, well, what do we do with this? What are we going to do with uh, what are we going to do with dreams? And Luther is mm, nervous about dreams. I think that's that's probably right. He talks about this Cato quote. Uh, we don't trust in king. We don't want to put our dreams. He remember if um, he talks about how there's two kinds of dreams. There's the political or private dreams, and then there's the theological dreams. And the key thing for Luther is, does it have its analogy? Does it have its connection to the word of God? So that, um, so he's asking when the dream comes, how do we know if it's true? So he had two rules. In the first place, they must not be vague and vanishing images or thoughts, like, like my pen here, but must have an analogy with the present state of affairs. In the second place, they should move the heart in such a way that the dreamer is troubled and disturbed. Uh, if Luther says, if you wake up and you forget your dream, don't that's forget your dream. There was a time in life, I think a lot of people have done this, where I was trying to capture the dreams because it's like a, it's 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 like um your dreams are like an a, a, like a visual pulse on your emotional state. And, but Luther's saying, look, if you got to do that, if you got to try to wake up and write it down, don't worry about that because the dreams that the Lord gives, if they're true dreams, they're going to trouble and disturb people. Okay. So those are the two rules. There's got to be some anxiety, he says. There must be very great agitation. Um, this is what the Lord says to Aaron. So we're pressing a little further here. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He entrusted all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. So that uh, <clears throat> Luther's saying here, uh, if anyone presides over the government of church affairs, I'll speak to him by word of mouth or through a vision or through a dream. But he speaks to Moses in a far different and loftier manner. Not through the word of a preacher or disciple of the prophets, nor in a vision or images or through a dream. No, he says, I speak with him mouth to mouth. Now, this is the, what this means is that when we have Moses, we have something more sure than a dream. And this is how the Lord wants to direct us, first of all, to the word. And then dreams, if they come, come after that. Um, this is so that so that we have the dream. We have to have uh, the dream has to be built on something. There's a foundation, so that if you if you just have a dream and it's just floating out there by itself, uh, the the what is dream dream? This is the sign for dream. If you just have a dream, it's floating out there. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, the thing that the dream needs. Here you are sleeping in bed. That's your feet your toes 
See, there you are asleep. And you have this dream, but you have to say, well, is it built on the word? And if it's built on the word, then I can say, okay, that dream can be helpful. But the dream has to, has to be built on something. We have, like everything, a ministerial view of dreams, a magisterial view of the word. Huh? All right. Uh, when the foundation has been laid, one should look at the dream to see whether it agrees with the foundation or not. I, I, I did this again when I was prepping this morning. I managed to delete all my highlights that I put before, so we don't get the highlights till yeah, down here. I don't know how I keep doing that. But anyway, one must see whether the stubble or gold is built on the foundation. In the same way, the foundation has been laid in a matter of discharging political duties. The heathen don't have the word, they have the actual thing and the calling by which they have been appointed to govern and rule in war and peace. If a dream now comes to a heathen commander or leader, a dream which has its counterpart, agrees with the thing itself and with his thoughts, it should be no means regarded as worthless. Accordingly, one should regard Jacob's dream much more as true and meaningful because it's been preceded by his appointment and a manifest divine calling to the priesthood and the primogenitor, and the true foundation is the promise. So this is this is always what Luther wants to do, is point us back to the promise. So he has the appointment. That happened with when Isaac blessed him. He has the calling. That happened even in the womb. When the Lord said, the older will serve the younger. So he has the priesthood, and he has the primogenitor, even though he's not the primogenitor. He was born 20 minutes later or whatever. He has it by way of promise. That's the true foundation, and the dream is built on that. He's troubled about the future completion of the whole structure above the foundation, since many misfortunes present themselves, namely his brother's trying to kill him, and also he's supposed to be this father of a huge family, but he has no babies. He's not even married. He's 76 years old. Oh, yeah, which I was going to show you. So let me let me show you that, by the way, since I was... Um, I was uh, goofing around with um, with the uh, the timing of all of this stuff. So I looked in my Steinman book, Abraham to Paul Biblical Chronology, which used to cost like five thousand dollars from CPH, but now I think it only costs twenty bucks. It is well worth it. It's an amazing text, and a lot of research went into it. And here is a chronology of Jacob's life. I don't know what day, I don't know what um, page this is on. I guess I could look it up here. This is page 80 in the book. And remember here, we're, uh, Jacob is born 206 BC. And now we're at the time when he's fleeing. So 1930. So he's 76. Luther's calculating this as 77, 76, 77. So he's an old man. If you're 77, you're also an old man, by the way, if you were wondering. <clears throat> that counts. I mean, once you're past 70, you're already at the divinely appointed line for being old. That's Psalm 90. It's it's God's opinion, not mine. So look, no, you can't be offended. <clears throat> 
70 years, if by reason of strength they be 80, yet they're nothing but toil and sorrow. That's from Psalm 90. So once you hit 70, you're officially old. And this is the divinely appointed age of man. This is about how far you get. But then look, so much of Jacob's life happens way after this. He's 83 when he marries Leah and Rachel. That's coming up. He's 90 when Joseph is born. So that in these um, in these seven years right here, 1923 uh, to 1916 is when 11 of the 12 boys that will become the tribes of Israel will be born. Uh, Benjamin is born. There's a big gap. Benjamin is born 19 years later. So, um, so th this is, this is all happening here when, um, when he returns to Cana. So this is, this would be the time when Jesus, uh, appears to him and he wrestles or wrestles when he wrestles with the Lord on the fords of the river Jabbok. <clears throat> I don't know how old you imagine that, but he's 96 years old. And then he's 135 when he goes down to Egypt. So these, this is all happening. He lives to, to be 152, according to my math here. But this is so he has a long life, but he's not really getting started until age 76. It's, it's really something. Now, um, I, I put the picture. It's they only had black and white photos back there when Jacob is wrestling with the Lord. Quick snap up shot. This is, but you got to imagine he's ninety six years old here. There's a lot of life. There's a lot of water under that bridge. Okay, and uh, and where is this? By the way, let's do the map here. I I looked this up. So. Um, so it's uh, Jacob is going to start in Beersheba, run up to Hebron through Jerusalem, which is at that time Salem, and here in Bethel. And this is where it's going to be on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, Luther's going to have a lot to say about this because it seems like a lot of the uh, medieval commentaries think that Bethel and Jerusalem are the same place. That's Luther's like, I don't think so. It's not a bad idea. But I don't think so. It's got to be this other town, Bethel here, where Jeroboam sets up the idols. It's not that far. Look, maybe five miles, three miles, five miles north of Jerusalem to get from, from Jerusalem to Bethel. And then Jacob, but look at where he's headed. So he's headed up to the um, where Abraham first lived. You got a way up there, way past Damascus, Aleppo. Here in this Padam Haran, uh, in this region, that's where he's headed. Padam Padan Aram Haran is up there. So this is where Jacob is going. So he's fled now, whoop, and Jerusalem, and then he's going to whoop. And then the next thing that, um, what's the next thing that happens? He's going to return, same route. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Not the same route. He comes back down. But then when he comes to Damascus, he doesn't come over, but he comes down this old, the King's Highway. This is what this is called, down the east side of the Dead Sea, down through Jordan. He comes over there, so he's kind of staying away. And then Esau comes to meet him uh, there. And here's Penuel right there on the Jabbok River. And so this is the place where 
this is a place where the Lord wrestles with Jacob, right, right, right here. Uh, and then he, I think if this Succoth must be where he meets, uh, where he settles, but he met, here's where he meets Esau, somewhere in here. I was trying to look up this morning, what's in Penuel? I don't, I'm not sure if there's anything there. So, okay. Back to the text. Uh, still talking about the dreams. The um, It has to be built on this foundation. If you don't have the Lord's word, then then you don't have it. So here he is. Oh, yeah, that's right. why we're talking about this. Because, um, because here's Jacob, who's 77 years old, and he has the promise of the family and the children and the land and everything else like this. But all he has is a rock for a pillow. And he's about to wander through the desert. And that's the amazing thing to see that the Lord is now going to confirm the promise through this dream. God is present and sends a very clear dream, which agrees with the fact and is in harmony with the foundation. And he's agitated. Jacob is agitated. Thus, the text says he was afraid. He was impelled to reverence when he saw that the dream was in agreement with the foundation. These are the true and meaningful dreams, like the word itself, never depart without accomplishing their purpose. They bring with them the true foundation, the agitation of heart. Again, just note that this is Luther's rule. Number one, does it match with the foundation? Number two, does it agitate your heart? The agitation agreement with the foundation. And at the same time, faith, which agrees with both, is added. So Luther's going to put in a third thing. Faith, if you don't have faith, this is a gift, then it doesn't matter. But if they are worthless dreams, like those the false prophets boast of, one will have to pay attention to the analogy, whether your heart has in fact been smitten and agitated. Although Satan too can bring this about, yet you must compare your dream with the word. This is, I mean, I, let me highlight that. This is the main thing. You must compare your dream with the word. If your dream differs from the word, what the word itself states, you must remember that it is false and vain. So that this, we have to remember how John says it, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. This dream of Jacob is very beautiful in agreement with the divine word, which he hears being sent down from heaven. I'm the Lord, etc. The godless err in their interpreting and understanding of dreams, just like they talk nonsense when they explain signs and prodigies, for they neither observe nor have the word. It's what happened to the Anabaptists, a monster who had seen a bow in the clouds and next to it a bloody hand. This they seized for themselves as a sign of victory, even though destruction was threatening them, as the outcome showed. But they erred in interpretation because they paid no attention to the foundation of the calling. For they had neither the word nor the power of the sword, since they were not administering the government in accordance with the divine ordinance and calling. This is the peasants' revolt and the Anabaptists and that whole nasty, bloody chapter of the Reformation. If something of this kind had occurred either because of a prodigy or a dream during the rule of Alexander or Julius Caesar, an interpretation would have been easier, for they had the word and ordinance of God. In other words, Julius Caesar had the sword legitimately, Munzer, did not. Accordingly, political dreams that are vague and without foundation, when the person is not a public functionary or in the government, and when the agitation and the analogy are not added, are good for nothing. 
Dreams pertaining to the church now. Dreams which have the word, the true foundation and analogy, are more certain. Thus, a Christian relies above all on the fact that he has been baptized. If the dream agrees with the foundation, oh, this is a, I have to put my highlighting back in. I, there's something that I was doing this morning that would highlight the whole book. I don't know. Still learning. If the dream agrees with the foundation and pertains to the strengthening of the godly and the frightening of the godless, one will be able to embrace it without danger. In other words, if the dream has uh, gospel and law, then you can say, yeah, great. I got some law gospel in my dream, just like I have the law gospel from the word. Jacob is strengthened by the dream, which has an analogy with his blessing. Last week when we were talking about this, we we then went and studied Matthew chapter 1 at church. And someone said, well, what, what does this have to do with the dreams? Because um, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. And we see the same thing happening there. It's really quite amazing that, um, that, that Joseph hears the Lord, the angel appears to him in a, in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, whoops, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. So he has the dream. And the question is, should I believe it? And so the first thing is, does it have an analogy? Is it connected to the word? So look at the very thing that happens next. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. I don't wonder if we should take this quote out here and let the angel go all the way down here. But the point is, this dream is built on the word. So we see a beautiful example there. If a dream agrees with the foundation and it pertains to the strengthening of the godly, gospel, frightening of the godless, law, you can embrace it without danger. Because what you're embracing is really not the dream itself, but you're embracing the foundation, the scripture. Thus, Jacob is strengthened by a dream, which has an analogy with the blessing. He knows that he's been blessed. And according to the word and promise, God will be his father and protector. But because his heart is troubled and alarmed by fear of plots and death, the Lord appears to him amid such grief, great grief, and speaks to him through a dream which agrees with the actual fact and has the true analogy. For the same Lord speaks with him and says the same things he has previously heard in the blessing. It's the same Lord, the same word that he had in his heart and in his father's house. But the conversation is much more magnificent than the one he had with his father. And now uh, we're going to be um, we're going to be pressing into what the Lord says and the gifts that He's given. When he wakens from his sleep, he marvels and says, "I, I thought that the Lord was only in my father's house. Oh, this is really great." Uh, therefore, up to this time, I heard the word of God in my father's church down in in uh, Isaac's home, the tents in there where Jacob was studying and so forth. But I find God in this place too. God is also here. For the same Lord whom I heard being praised in my father's house is speaking to me here. 
Indeed, this conversation is far better. Consequently, it seems that the house of God is here rather than in the house of my father. Yet this place is in the midst of enemies. Accordingly, Jacob learns that the church of God is also in the midst of enemies, as stated in Psalm 110, rule in the midst of thy foes. This is surely remarkable. For the church of God must be where we think that there are innumerable devils. Listen, just can we let that sink in a little bit? Here, here Jacob's running away. He says, I'm I'm leaving the house. I'm leaving the, the temple the place where we worship. I'm leaving all this stuff behind. I'm going where all these pagans are. I'm afraid for my life. And here God gives me a dream. Thus, the place where Jacob falls asleep is in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, where the Canaanites and the power of Satan ruled. Consequently, it seemed to be anything but the house of God, and Jacob only thought, if I can remain here one night safe and sound, I should be satisfied. Tomorrow morning I shall rise and flee. Nothing else could have entered his mind than the fact that he was sleeping in the midst of enemies where the ruler of this world and the God of this world reigned. In other words, he's in this great danger where he is. If I can just make it through the night, I can get out of here. But behold, God is here, he said, and I did not know it. For I did not think that God is anywhere else than in the house of my father Isaac, where he's pastor and where the blessing was given to me. But I am really seeing and experiencing that God is fulfilling his promises in a wonderful manner, the promise in which he said, I will give you this land. And now I understand that I will be the Lord of this land in which I am lying in such a great terror and grief. I had never hoped that this would happen. Now, you might say to yourself, okay, pastor, how does Luther know that that's what Jacob was thinking? How does he how does he get there? And it is that he's expounding a little bit, which is it's actually wonderful to see. It's one of the reasons why Luther's so much fun. But it's not apart from the word, because Luther is really riffing on this word here. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. You see it? I did not know it. Why didn't he know it? He thought that this place was a place without the Lord. And it turns out, in fact, that this is the place where the Lord is. So that the Lord is teaching Jacob something and also us something, which has to do with where do you look for the Lord? Where do you try to find him? Do you you just go to the church building? Is that where the Lord is? No. No. So here Jacob had this idea that in his father's house, the Lord was there, and now the Lord is expanding that understanding. In this manner, God richly consoles Jacob through the dream, and Jacob, who had been terrified and agitated by the dream, which had an analogy and which was in agreement with the fact itself, was wonderfully strengthened. Therefore, it's a true dream. There are further discussions about where the place Bethel is, and now we get to the um to the to the to luther's geography stuff here it's very famous and and but this is actually this is really helpful because the um because bethel we learned i think first here maybe we've had a, a little mention of bethel before in genesis i can't remember but this is the big deal for bethel because uh it's going to be when solomon dies and jeroboam rebels 
And so Rehoboam is king in Judah. Jeroboam is king in Israel, the northern 10 tribes. And Jeroboam sets up two altars, one at Dan and one at Bethel. And in the northernmost and the southernmost places in the territory. And the people are coming down to Bethel to worship rather than going to Jerusalem. And it Bethel becomes the key. It's like um it's like opening a it's like putting a food truck in it's like putting your taco food truck in front in front of in the parking lot of the most popular Mexican restaurant. So that the people are going to go to the restaurant and they see the long lines and they're like, well, I'll just go to this food truck. So, so Jeroboam puts this temple in Bethel so that all the people are going down to Jerusalem and they get, and instead of having to hike up the mountain to Jerusalem, they get to Bethel and the priests are all like, we'll just worship here. And, and so Jeroboam, and so the prophets after the division of the kingdom are railing against Bethel. Bethel becomes the house of, of Baal of false worship of the false gods but bethel is going to claim this heritage of well remember jerusalem wasn't important until david moved it i mean it was important but it became the center of the jewish life at king during king david's time so, so we're looking at let me see if i can draw a timeline here i mean we have uh let's see Okay, here's a timeline. Here's King David, 10-10. So this is when David becomes king. And so it's, when is it? It's like 10, um, 10, 13 or 10, 16 or so when Jerusalem, when Jerusalem becomes popular. Well, we're back now in the time of, of uh, Jacob's dream. And what year was that again? This is uh, 1930 BC, <laughs> when when the when the Lord gives the dream at Bethel. I mean, it's, it's just to put the 1446 is the Exodus, and uh, you know, two. Well, let's put this at 33 is when Jesus dies, AD. So here, you know, here's, so this is, so this is an amazing, and so then let's see, uh, Solomon becomes king. Uh, oh, I did this backwards. I, I went back. Uh, I always, this is the great danger of BC time. You gotta, you gotta work the other direction. So uh, Solomon becomes king in 970. Solomon dies in 930, 931. So Jerusalem becomes important in, it's counting down the other way, in 1003 or something like that, 1006, 1003. And then here is at 930 is when Jeroboam builds Bethel. And he says, Bethel is greater than Jerusalem. And one of the arguments he's made, he says, look, the Lord appeared to Bethel appeared to us at Bethel 1,000 years ago. And we've only been worshiping at Jerusalem for 76 years. So the heritage of Bethel, 1,000 years. In fact, it looks like it, it could be even on the anniversary, the one, the one millennium anniversary 
of the dream is when Jeroboam says, hey, we're going to come and worship here and not in Jerusalem. So it's a compelling argument. And so the prophets, uh, Hosea and, and all the prophets of the divided kingdom, which went just to finish our timeline, we had 930 as the division of the kingdoms, north and south, until the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. It's 586 that the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. And that's Daniel and the deportation. And then 70 years later, but minus 10 or whatever, do you get you get them coming back and rebuilding the temple. And then in, in the year 400, you have Malachi and the close of the canon. Okay, so that's a real quick overview. But you see how, like for this for this two hundred years, when they're worshiping at Dan and most especially at Bethel, that's when the prophets, uh, Amos, Hosea, all these guys, Isaiah is even here. I, this is the time of Isaiah, right in there. They're all railing against Bethel. Okay. I got a note from Oliver, by the way, who says the people would rather wait in long lines to get the real tacos. I don't, I don't know. Jeroboam seemed pretty successful. So, uh, okay. So, uh, there's, so we're now on Bethel. This, this is why this is so important. It's important to understand this, the heritage of Bethel. It's a famous, very famous prophets in all the Holy scripture, especially Hosea. Uh, he found him in Bethel. It was very praised and honored among the people of Israel. Jeroboam, a very wise and exceedingly industrious man, also wicked and godless, but he had some earthly wisdom here, chose this as the place to which to set up one of the golden calf near Jerusalem, as he set up the other calf and Dan toward the north. For the king fashioned these two gods or idols in conformity with a plan that was very wise according to reason. And here this is. I mean, very wicked also, according to the spirit, but um, he placed them at the two farthest limits of his province. The calves of Samaria were added to these. Bethel is at the farthest limits of the kingdom of Israel in Ephraim, and the temple of Jerusalem, which was built by Solomon, was 12 boundary stones distant from Bethel. That is three short miles. Accordingly, Jeroboam reasoned astutely as follows, I'll institute idolatry in two places in order that the people of my realm may have worship and the, a definite place on both sides to keep them within the boundaries of the kingdom. Uh, we saw that, right? Uh, let me see if I can. Um, let me go back to the old map here. Jacob starts a family. So I wonder if I should... I wonder if I should do the I can do the division of the kingdoms here. I bet you I can. David, Elijah, return from exile. Nope. Uh, Manasseh. Nope. Exile. Nope. Uh, Jehoshaphat. Nope. Divided kingdom here. Okay. Ah, this is nice. So here's the here's the divided kingdom. Here's Israel, the southern kingdom. Here's the northern kingdom. So you see that, and, and here's Jerusalem here by Bethlehem. It's not going to give me Jerusalem. There, there, there's Jerusalem. And here's Bethel. So you see all the people from here, they go to Jericho 
and then up this way. They come down all this sort of stuff. They basically have to go through Bethel to get to Jerusalem. And that's where Jer uh, Jeroboam puts this altar so they can just stop there. It's, it's, a, it's an ingenious plan. Okay. Uh, oh, and where was Dan? Let's see if we can see Dan. Dan was in the north. Dan, patriarch. Dan, here, there's Dan. So Dan is in the north. Here's Sea of Galilee. Dan is up here. The headwaters of the of the Jordan River. There's three springs up here. There's Mount Hermon. Dan's on the base of the mountain. There's the headwaters of the Jordan River there. That's where Dan is. So when he when Jeroboam um it's uh, you see what when he builds um when he builds his his uh his temples at Dan oops at Dan in the north and at Bethel right down here in the south he's got he's got he's got his boundaries confirmed and he can make this argument look don't go to Jerusalem it's crazy. Okay. Um, Jill says, "Is it? For, for, I don't. I, we're going to get into that. I think here. This is a, a somewhat. Uh, there's so, so there's some controversy over this. Uh, don't go to Gilgal, to Bethel. They cried to Beth Avon, for this is what they called Bethel. For here they sought special forms of worship, sacrifice, burning of incense, invocation." only in order that the temple and the worship in Jerusalem might be held in contempt. Concerning the temple, God had said, here I dwell. That's the temple in Jerusalem. But they guarded their idolatry with a wonderful show of sanctity, for they boasted that such a glorious apparition had come to the patriarch Jacob in this place, that the latter had been seen here, and that God had spoken with Jacob in this place, not in Jerusalem. Accordingly, the prophets, Hosea in particular, opposed and condemned this idolatry with great zeal, but they achieved nothing. And, and so that so that this argument for Bethel, they they put back to Jacob. So this is why this is such a famous place. Now, uh, Luther's going to say, what do we do with that? Because this is going to have a lot of application for what is the church. When we inculcate the doctrine of justification by faith alone, so often and so clearly, our adversaries present, present their Bethaven, their Bethel, their church, and the authority of the fathers. And this is certainly no small trial by which many are led astray from the true knowledge and zeal of the gospel. In other words, just like Jeroboam said, look, uh, Beth Bethel is better than Jerusalem because, look, it has this long heritage. Jacob was here a thousand years. David is this new thing. So they make the same argument. Luther has a new doctrine. Look at what the Pope Gregory said. Look at what St. Augustine said. You deny purgatory? Look at how St. Augustine taught purgatory and so forth. And Luther says, that's Bethel. Because it doesn't have the word of God. It, had, it might have a long lineage, but it doesn't have the word. Moreover, Bethel, the word... Bethel, the word, means house of God. Beth, house, El, God. That's what Jacob names the place. 
This is the house of God. Someone says, my Eastern Orthodox friends say this. It's exactly right. That's Bethel. We have this long tradition, this uninterrupted tradition of the fathers. Well, okay. So did Bethel. But did you have the word of God? That glorious title, extraordinary name, moved people in a wonderful manner. So they said, you see, this has actually come to pass in this way. Moses himself corroborates it. This place is Bethel. It's the house of God. Jerusalem is not the true place for worship. For here, Bethel, God appeared and spoke. Therefore, he must be worshipped here, just as Jacob worshipped him and promised solely that he wanted to set up worship and tithe. But the whole point of Jacob was not that there was something special about the place. I mean, this is the whole thing. The Lord appeared to Jacob to the Lord appeared to Jacob at Bethel. Why? Because Jacob was at Bethel. <laughs> the place is accidental. The the it's the word that matters. This was a great offense, this argument for the primacy of Bethel. And the prophets, Hosea in particular, complained bitterly about it. In the papacy, we have nothing like it, nothing that makes such a show as this. In other words, we should be able to resist it even easier. But nearly all the commentators disagree with this view. There was apparently a, a view in the Middle Ages that Bethel and Jerusalem were the same. They say this place, Bethel, is Jerusalem, the temple itself. Concerning Mount Moriah, which mentioned was made above in chapter 22, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, they say this very place is Bethel, where Shem and the other fathers worshipped and sacrificed, and where later the temple was built. Therefore, before the time of the patriarch Jacob, it was Bethel and the house of God, where the fathers worshipped and sacrificed, where Abraham wanted to sacrifice his son Isaac. Nor is there any doubt that this place was chosen for meetings of the church, for they will not find it easy to persuade us that this place was the city of Jerusalem itself. And so far as the histories and the prophets testify, it was situated outside Jerusalem and was 12 boundary stones distant from the city. So, I mean, close, but not exactly. So Luther's saying that the ancient fathers want to put all these places in one spot at Jerusalem. And he says, ah, you just can't do it from the history. Lyra quotes two verses containing eight names of the city of Jerusalem. Soima, Luza, Bethel, Hyrosoloima, Hybus, Halia, Urbus, Sacra, Jerusalem, Dictor, Agatesal, Salem. I have my doubts about Luz and Bethel. So, so Luther's saying these two are like uh, Jill says in the comments, Luz and Bethel are a different place. And that's my view concerning the discussion. The changes to the cities are strange and varied. It, if the opinion of those who assign this name to the city of Jerusalem is true, and I surely concede that for a time the city was called Bethel in such a way, however, that it did not retain the name, but was the name was transferred to the city of Jerusalem, or that it was called Bethel with a common noun, not with a proper name. Like people call Texas God's country. It's not its actual name. It's just saying what it is. That's the example. This is God's house uh, as, a, as a way of describing Jerusalem, but not as the official name of it. The description of the places in Joshua disagrees with this. Joshua points out that I and Bethel were neighboring cities, provided the city of Bethel remained up to the times of Joshua, and it seems that it was a small village near I. As has been stated above, Abraham pitched his camp between Bethel and I in Genesis 12. Therefore, if Jacob called Jerusalem Bethel, he did so with a common noun, not with a proper noun, as though he were saying, here God dwells. Otherwise, I'm not able to bring the opinion of the others into agreement with the prophets. It's nice to see how careful Luther is being here, even on the geography. 
The accounts in Judges and Joshua also agree that Mount Moriah was a place in Bethel. Consequently, there's agreement with the statement of Jacob, this is the house of God. Otherwise, it is certain that the names of the cities are often changed in various ways. But I pass over this. I would like to think that this place was Mount Calvary itself, where the Lord himself slept um, in the tomb. If I could do this with thoughts that are sure and firm, they would still, uh, sorry, if I could not do this with thoughts that are sure and firm, they would still be godly thoughts. This is an interesting idea. So Luther says, it would be great if they were right, if Bethel and Jerusalem were the same place, so that Jacob is sleeping on the same place where Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb. He said, that's pretty cool. And the uh, the ancient fathers used to say that the Garden of Eden was at the same place. That's here. The tree of the forbidden wood was also said to have stood in the same place, so that the tree where Adam and Eve ate was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it was God's will that Christ should be crucified and died there. Now, we say, look, that that garden was destroyed by the flood, and you can't find it, etc. But there was an old tradition. I wonder, I wonder who says that kind of thing. Um, no, it's just going to quote Luther. That, that There's an old tradition that the garden was the same place where, which was the same place where Isaac was sacrificed, which was the same place where Jacob slept, the, the door of heaven, which was the same place where Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So therefore, it's God's will that Christ should be crucified and die here. The place where Jacob saw the ladder would be the same place where Christ, the true Jacob, slept in the sepulcher, rose again. The angels ascended, descended. Thus, this place should properly, truly be called Bethel. But this is only a thought. If it's not true, it's at least harmless. <laughs> in other words, it's not going to hurt you to think that. Nor is there any danger if we don't have definite names for the places. At the time of Abraham and Joshua, Jerusalem and Bethel were three miles apart. Whether proper names have been changed into common nouns, it's of little importance. Those eight names which Lyra quotes have the same meaning. The Lord was seen there in a vision of, of peace. I leave it to the grammarians. It's sufficient for us to know that Jacob was strengthened here in his faith and promise. And here he heard this, here he saw the same Lord God and heard the same word. And in his dream, saw the same church that he had heard and seen at home. And this is the thing that holds it all together is the word. And, 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 and this is really nice. Because if, if Jesus was crucified in the garden of Gethsemane there, or I mean, outside of Jerusalem and laid in the tomb, or if he was crucified in Damascus or in Rome or in Babylon or in wherever, it does not matter. It is the crucifixion that matters. And it is the word that gets that to us no matter where we are. He's here alone, and beside him there's no one else in order that we may learn that God's church is where God's word resounds. Whether it's in the middle of Turkey, in the papacy, in hell itself. For it is God's word which establishes the church. He is Lord over all places. Wherever that word is heard, where baptism, the sacrament of the altar, the absolution are administered, there you must determine and conclude with certainty, this is surely God's house. Here, heaven has been opened. 
But just as the word is not bound to any place, so the church is not bound to any place. One should not say, the chief pontiff is at Rome, therefore the church is there. Where God speaks, where Jacob's ladder is, where the angels ascend and descend, there is the church. There is the kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is opened. So this is it's not about the place, but rather about the word and the gifts that the Lord gives in that place. Okay. Uh, so then Jacob wakes up and says, "How awesome is this place? There's none. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven." Oh, Luther loves it because now this is going to be a whole discussion of what is the church. Oh, this is an. I mean. Uh, an amazing pre, uh, preaching here where Luther's going to say, what is the church? Where do we see the church? How do we know where the church is? This is all going to come out of this. It's, be it's really beautiful. But I'm looking at the time. This might be a good spot to stop. Let me, let me think. Yep. Yep. This will be a good spot to stop. So let's, um, so let's say a quick prayer here and then I'll, I'll turn off the recording and jump in and see what's going on in the chat as well. Um, let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that you establish your church through your word and where your word is preached and you give the gifts of baptism and the body and blood of your son. You open heaven uh, to us. We give you thanks that you've given us such confidence in your promises and your peace. We pray you would keep us in them, especially as we celebrate uh, the incarnation of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ this week. For we ask all these things through the same Jesus who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.